All right. Hi, everybody. It's Tuesday night, so we're doing another RCFB Talk. It's RCFB Talk 139. My name is Bob Akairi. I'm your host. Would love to hear from you. Lots of things are continually churning in the college football universe. It might be the offseason, but as people will say throughout the sport, especially coaches, it just never ends, <laughs> especially for folks recruiting and with NIL and with the transfer portal for folks in the industry, it really doesn't end. And especially for those out there, if you'd like to join us, feel free to hit request. It's in the bottom left of the Twitter app, which is how you have to access it. It's been a good week. I hope everything's good for all of you out there. Um, here in Minnesota, it's warm right now. It was in the 80s today, which I will tell you is it's unbelievable to me because a month ago it was snowing. But um, what's on your mind? Let's talk college football. Lots of things going on. You know, I'm thrilled to be here. And the reason I want to use that word is because <laughs> the Florida Athletic Director, Michael Alford, said the Seminoles are thrilled to be in the ACC, which um, definitely raised some eyebrows after what's been going on there. I think uh, it's the offseason, you know, we love to talk about conferences and potential realignment, and the ACC has had its own side drama that, while it's been kind of churning in the background behind more prominent stories about the Pac-12 and Big 12, in the last, oh, half week or so, they kind of jumped back into the forefront. Because back in February, and we talked about this a bit on our CFB talk, but back in February, the AD in question, Michael Alford, was giving a presentation to Florida State's Board of Regents or Board of Trustees. I always forget. Every school has their own name for it. But basically, they said, you know, look, we're going to fall behind in money, especially with what's going on with the SEC and Big, and, uh, Big Ten. And then, the, the, by the way, the recent numbers that the Big 12 are looking to get are going to put some of their teams in a position to to potentially earn more so he basically said, look, we're going to be earning less than potentially UCF now um, with our media rights deal and all of that. So I think uh, that started to get the wheels turning. And apparently he was not alone. So the from the rumors and these are legitimate rumors coming from multiple sources, including legitimate, you know, uh, sports media like The Athletic, et cetera. You know, some of the other programs like UNC, like Virginia, Clemson, unsurprisingly, actually Florida State and Clemson tend to be the leaders on this. But a few schools are starting to want to see if they can get out of that grant of rights deal. Now, the ACC is peculiar in that they created a very, very strong document called the grant of rights, um, often abbreviated to the GOR. But it's grant of rights deal, which basically locks them into a media deal until the 2035 school year, uh, 2035, 2036 school year. So the problem is they, they will pay out massive exit fees if they leave. I believe the number being bandied about when Florida State first brought this up in February it was something like $120 million, which is an enormous sum of money. But if you're earning $30 million more plus by joining a conference like the SEC, that can quickly be made up over time, especially if you can galvanize your alumni base. So that's been one of those kind of big stories that's been kind of bubbling up. And so what happened was back on Friday, um, there was a little bit of discussion about whether or not the conference, you know, what, you know, trying to see the whether or not they can do, you know, they call it, I believe, a weighted revenue distribution model, but basically uneven to pay some of the top schools, the ones with the bigger media markets, more 
each year in a sort of an uneven distribution again uh, to the ACC teams to benefit those programs that were bringing in more, basically to please Florida State, to please Clemson, and a few of those other teams that might be considering departing the conference. The problem with those numbers is even you know everyone involved agrees that they still won't be enough to make up the the sheer gap that's going to start to appear between. As some people have joked, you know, Vanderbilt is now going to be earning more per year than Florida State um, and Clemson with, with the new media arrangements deals that are going to be done by the SEC and, and obviously in the Big Ten. So seeing all of that, this seems to be a Band-Aid. And from what it sounds like and what's been coming out with some good reporting um, coming out of there by Nicole Arbuck and many others, uh, it seems like the, that's why he said he's thrilled to be in the ACC, Florida State's athletic director. So is it a bandage? Probably. Is it any worse than what's going on right now with the uh, the Pac-12 and Big, tw- Big 12? Probably a little bit better, probably a little more stable, but um, it's certainly more to ponder and more to uh, kind of keep in mind as we head into this offseason and, and kind of draw towards the season. Again, if you'd like to talk about anything in college football, feel free to hit request. would love to talk to you um, as we kind of go through this. You know, talking about deadlines in terms of things to keep in mind as we head towards the season and the potential for another wave of realignment. Um, there was an interesting piece of reporting that came out, and I know Ross Dellinger over at SI pointed this out, but the, and especially when you compare it against what the, the messaging coming out of some of the Pac-12, because the Pac-12, their biggest problem is no one's, they're so not unified. Each university president seems to grab the mic and say something, and it doesn't always seem to mesh with what, you know, the because I, Klyovkov isn't very vocal, and I think the, the commissioner of the Pac-12 isn't as vocal as what you'd get out of, you know, um, your mark over at the Big 12. It doesn't feel quite as cogent. So one of the latest things that came out was um, Arizona State's athletic director, Ray Anderson, said to expect a Pac-12 deal to be complete in July or August, then followed by likely expansion. And he mentioned the teams that we've been hearing about, San Diego State and Southern Methodist. Those seem to be the Pac-12s. Uh, targets to replace the LA schools and try to pull in at least the Southern California market and, and the Dallas Metroplex. But um, one of the problems here with that timeline and, and Ross Dellinger pointed this out, San Diego state's in a bind. If, if this goes in that kind of a timeline, because essentially San Diego state, the way they work is they, um, the conference will let them out uh, for, I believe it's something like $17 million uh, is their buyout with the Mountain West. However, if uh, it goes past June 30th this year, it triples in cost. So if the, um, I, and I'm not sure exactly if it resets or something, but Ross believes it would delay uh, an entrance into the Pac-12 um, until, the 20, until 2025. So that was an interesting kind of quirk to that. So we'll see. And, and again, I think I, I doubt the Arizona State AD was aware of that, or maybe he was. I'm not sure. But it, that seems to be kind of classic Pac-12 right now. No one exactly knows what's going on there because they're being so quiet. And then when the AD or school president talks, um, they throw out dates that either don't happen or you know might seem to conflict with some of the other information that's coming out. One more thought. I just wanted to have it. Oh, and I see we have someone who wants to join us, our friend 
uh, coach Clark over at Western Oregon. I'm going to go ahead and let him up in a moment. But I just want to say we've mentioned it before, but it's finally happened. Um, they announced it a few months ago. But Iowa Wesleyan, small school in Iowa, but it has an important history in college football because it was the actual birthplace of the air raid offense. Hal Mama and Mike Leach was one of his assistants for the NAIA Tigers. They developed the air raid. Uh, you know, Dana Holgerson was a wide receiver there. Um, that little school, unfortunately, they just couldn't get it going. They, they, uh, financially, they, they were, they did a real hail Mary and they took an enormous loan from, uh, actually the U S department of agriculture, but they defaulted on the loan. So the campus was a collateral and the campus, which had about 750 students just had their final graduation. So that is the end of Iowa Wesleyan football and Iowa Wesleyan as an institution. So just to, Wanted to kind of take a moment and, and uh, give our condolences uh, for all of those. Uh, you know, obviously, it's not literal. I mean, there's things that are it's not as serious as obviously someone passing, but it is sort of a, a sad thing to see. Although on the lighter note, um, one of our folks in our CFB, because, uh, you know, we're, we, we love our humor over there. Michigan fan, one prior nine, nine, oh, nine. This this underlines the fact that the state of Iowa really does hate Iowa, really does hate offense. Uh, <laughs> but let's go ahead and get, let's get Coach Clark up here. And again, if you'd like to join the conversation, hit request. We'd love to hear from you. Whatever you want to talk about in college football. It's the off season. Let's enjoy ourselves. But uh, let's see here. I know it takes us sometimes a little bit to connect people as we're getting there. Um, oh, hey, so feel free to unmute. We'd love to hear from you, Coach Clark. Oh, hey, how you doing? Good, how are you? Well, that's kind of sad, you know, I mean, I played at a small NAIA school. I'm an alum at Tabor College in Hillsborough, Kansas, class of 2012. And some of those little tiny NAIA schools, they're small private liberal arts colleges. And uh, <clears throat> some of them have been going belly under just because they can't can't operate, you know. And I, it's, just a, it's really, you know, when I was in school, I started seeing a trend of the way a lot of universities are going with the cost of education, you know, and uh, what it takes to keep your making business you know you know with the cost of education and uh you know your chances of getting a job with a degree now are it's, it's not i wouldn't say it's terribly equitable and i'm seeing i'm seeing kind of a i wouldn't say a domino effect but one thing a lot of schools are getting smart about is they're adding sports because that's what you know your motivation for going to college in the first place and and staying alive and operate you know and operating you know like we added men's soccer this year at western and whatnot but like when I was playing out there, you know, I was the only kid from Oregon on the on the on the 2011 squad. You know, they got to recruit the nation. They got to bring in a hundred, you know, a bunch of athletes X Y Z, and they got to add sports to stay alive. You know, when I was in school, we had the same thing happen. Dana College in uh, Nebraska, they went out of business. Also, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's interesting too because um, you're right, and it's something we've been seeing across the board a lot of. For all the programs that, that seem to shudder, we'll always hear an announcement or two each season. At least it seems to be at least two a season that are announcing either at D3 or NAIA that they're adding a program for that reason. Because, I mean, even NAIA, NAIA there's some scholarships, but they're not they're not huge. Or they, I believe it's like something I used to know the numbers because I talked to uh, Jeff Prudhomme over at uh, um, Texas Wesleyan when we were starting that program. But, you know, and they can kind of cut up the scholarships. It doesn't have to be full. You can cut them up into little pieces and actually give them to multiple players. So it's like you just have the, the total amount for 
X number of players and you can break it down, but they get more money in aggregate if they can fill that team from a bunch of, you know, because a football team's a big, it's still a good number of students. Um, and, and those are the ones paying tuition. So it's kind of an interesting gambit to sort of bring more uh, people onto campus, but also kind of hopefully galvanize alumni a little bit. It's always been kind of, I think I always feel bad for the small colleges, especially, you know, in, in some of the older areas of the Midwest and uh, the East Coast, not because they're, part of it is their model was fr- from a different era, because you always see what they were all founded, you know, like 100 years ago, plus when there weren't freeways, you know, people might take a train, but not really. Um, so they were kind of colleges that really appealed to the local region. And now in the age of, you know, ever, especially, you know, the success of college sports, the success of, you know, everyone knows their big state school. If you're in the state of uh, uh, you know, Ohio, you know, Ohio State, you know, you know, at this point, you're knowing Cincinnati, you're knowing some of these other schools. And so the larger public schools are starting to pull people in while some of these smaller, you know, often private schools, they, they struggle quite a bit. And so it's a tough it's a tough thing. and it, it, It's difficult, you know. There's there's some small private schools that obviously do great. You know, they're usually at the top of the you know liberal arts college list. Whenever you read the U.S. News or whatever, you know, your Amherst, your Williams, you know, Carlton out here in Minnesota or, or McAllister. Or plenty of people are Oxy. Well, and the funny thing is Occidental out in L.A., they're a solid school. They dropped football, gosh, I want to say before the pandemic. They announced they just couldn't feel the football team anymore. I mean, it got bad for them towards the end. They straight up had a, a forfeit a few games because they couldn't keep a roster healthy um and then the next year they just said all right we're done so um but the school's doing fine so yeah it's it's interesting stuff to see that and and especially on the on the lowest run uh, not the lowest rungs that's an insult but i mean just on the smaller scale of of college football and the small colleges that play it i mean we just saw with simon fraser you know they had to drop football because they are stuck in canada (laughs) stuck in canada but i mean they are the they were the canadian college football team and everyone in their conference, you know, decided to join the Lone Star Conference and because their conference that, through attrition just only had like five teams or four teams and they just three. couldn't find opponents. Just had three. <laughs> yeah. And, it, you know, the same thing we saw again before the pandemic, some of these some of these ecosystems are really, you know, if you think of college football conferences as ecosystems, they are quite subject to, to collapse at any given time, because I remember Arizona's JUCO football system just came apart in like two months. They, because at some point, I forgot which teams kicked that off, but some of the JUCO programs announced they could not support football anymore. So they were ending the program. And then a bunch of other programs in the state suddenly just couldn't have enough opponents. So it, it kind of isolated the rest. And then they said, we can't possibly afford. To, to maintain a junior college football team that has to now go to all of these other places um, to, to get opponents. So it, it just caused this mass collapse of, of, of every junior college football team in the state of Arizona. They had like six, I want to say five or six before it all came apart. Mm-hmm. I know Snow well, College out in Utah, they almost went down too, but they were able to keep themselves together. They, they had a little bit more... They're a little more established of a program just in general. So they were willing, I believe, to keep it together. But it almost brought snow down with the rest of them. I think they're the only team from that conference with the Arizona schools in that JUCO that was able to survive that. Because it's funny, moment one drops, suddenly, you, you know, and people don't, especially people who are big fans of P5 and, and, and FCS and, and obviously G5 football, 
you know, we're used to just, you know, oh, it's no problem. Just schedule a team. You know, it might be a little bit of a, a headache, but you can you can make something work. But these lower the, at the lower divisions, I mean, finding opponents can be difficult when somebody drops. Suddenly you've got really a financial crisis on your hands. It's much easier, I think, in the East Coast because there's so many schools that are at least close to each other. But West, you know, the distances are so big that it doesn't take much to, to shake that up. But uh, yeah. But meanwhile, how's everything going for you? Um, everything looking good? I mean, what's it like for you at this stage of the offseason? Well, uh, if I told you everything was all gumdrops and ice cream, I think I'd be lying to you. You know, we're, 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 we're actually kind of finishing up fall uh, spring camp right now. Uh, and if, if I always have this theory that if your spring ball is easy, it's going to be a rough season. And if spring ball is rough, and we're creating stress, and our boys are going through growing pains, it's going to be a pretty darn good year. You know, you still got to show up and play and work your tail off. But, um, you know, like a lot of teams, I don't profess to know what goes on in a lot of other programs, but some might run a third of their playbook or the basic stuff in the base playbook. We got everything in about just about everything we do in our whole system in the first few weeks. We got our spring green coming up Saturday the 20th. They're at uh, MacArthur Field in Monmouth. You know, and we were, Coach Ferguson was looking for opportunities to put guys in stressful situations, you know, especially with our linebackers. You know, we we're replacing an All-American, which is not easy. And so our, our our guys we get back are having to step up. And so we've asked them to be put put our guys in situations. So if you're playing Will or Sam, which is our outside guys, we're going to put you inside in the box, we'll have you play some Mike. You know, if you're Mike, we're going to put you, put you at, the, at the Will backer, which is usually the best of your cover guys. And if anyone out there is listening – the nickel safety is a fancy word for a will linebacker <laughs> with modern football. That's what you are. Um, so we're putting those, our guy, our, our, you know, our big guys inside that defend the run. We're putting them there on the, you know, to, to the pass drink so they can work on their footwork and their coverage and just putting them in situations that they might not normally be in. Excellent. Yeah, no. So, I mean, and for those of you listening in, we're, we're joined by our friend, uh, Coach Clark. He's always a regular listener um, over at Western Oregon. And uh, we just I just figured I'd ask and, and see what's going on. But if you, anyone out there, if you'd like to talk college football, any level, any division, um, the big stories of the day or what have you. By the way, one other story I wanted to mention, because this is a story I admire USF for how they've been approaching their stadium process because South Florida, obviously in Tampa, they play off, they play off campus. They play with the, where the Buccaneers play. And so they've been slowly talking about building an on campus stadium. And like those uh, large public Florida universities, they have a huge student body and therefore they have the ability to kind of draw on a, a number of funds that don't necessarily involve a couple of huge, big number, uh, big money donors um, to an extent, that's how UCF got around to kind of building up their own program before. And obviously now it's paid dividends to look at where they are now. But so they've over the last, I want to say, year and a half, maybe more than that. I, the years all blur together. I joke the pandemic kind of put a weird hiccup in how I think of time. But they've been very, very, very um, deliberate. At first, they said, you know, we're going to start looking at putting an on-campus stadium. Oh, we're looking at possibly these couple of areas. I mean, months would go past. We're going to now have a meeting in five months where we're going to talk about five months would pass. They'd have the meeting. And at no point was there ever a hiccup or a controversy 
So they've been gradually building towards this on-campus stadium, and they have room on their campus to fit it in without causing too much chaos. It's a big footprint for the uh, the USF campus. But so now they reach the point where, um, according to uh, the University of South Florida's Board of Regents, uh, pardon me, Board of Trustees, I always, every school's got a different one. The Board of Trustees agenda, the uh, financing corporation is planning to issue debt um, for about $200 million to finance the construction of a stadium project located on the Tampa campus. The total cost of the project, which includes construction, design costs, contingency, and furnishings, equipment, blah, 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 is about $340 million. Um, they expect to begin in October, so about midway through this upcoming season. This has been, again, something UCF has probably, yeah, gosh, forgive me, guys. USF has been very much, um, you know, has been very deliberate about. They've been planning to do it, seeing their rival UCF, you know, do so well um, with their own on-campus stadium and then obviously rising through a successful series of coaches, which if you could look back, gosh, I mean, hell, let's look back to 2007. You would not have guessed UCF would have been the two of these schools that would be where they are now. USF looked like the stronger of the two because, you know, that was, of course, 2007 was a wacky season, but they managed to climb to number two in the BCS you know, the state, the program at that point was only a decade old um, and they were, seemed to be a model for rising up and being uh, just a, the next level program. And then it just kind of stagnated. They had some success and then the coaches would be poached or, you know, they, they made some attempts to hire coaches like Charlie Strong. And it just, you know, after he left Texas and it didn't quite pan out, um, but it still is a, a school in the state of Florida with the ability to budget that kind of thing. And I think now they are slowly long-term thinking about how they would ever, um, how they would ever, you know, if they're going to eventually angle up to, to rising up like UCF, this is, this is going to be a big anchor point for them. So I believe again, it looks like they only have to give about two years notice to Raymond James stadium uh, in order to depart it. And they may again, eventually, eventually have that stadium in a, in a couple of years, which which would make sense. If they're planning to break ground on that in October 2023, it takes about two years to build a stadium and have it all set up. And that would fit into that. That would give them that 48-month uh, 48 48 notice to, to – actually, 48 – month? Did I just say that? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, 48 – well, they'll probably have to pay a buyout. But you know what? It, it'll probably be worth it in the end to, to get them on campus. So that was kind of one of those other stories that – that sort of has been creeping in the background, and I saw it come up again with some of the tweets happening this evening. Yeah, Coach Clark, what's up? Well, I got a funny story. That's how we've been about turf at Western, <laughs> getting a turf field. We're like the only college in Oregon that still plays on grass. But, you know, uh, in bad weather games and just playing on real grass, it's, you know, in the in Lone Star, it's probably about a seven-point advantage, I think. You know, they all play on – they all play on turf and double deck stadiums. And, you know, we've got grass at MacArthur Field, but uh, I'm not much. I'm an X's and O's guy and a ball coach. I, I you know, I can't believe I have my undergrads in business, but uh, I'm not all that great with money and, and dollars and you know all this economic stuff we're talking about. But if if they're going to go ahead with the stadium thing, it probably needs to be on par or better than you know than what they can have at Raymond James with an on-campus stadium. 
because sometimes playing in those pro venues is a recruiting tool. You know, it probably it's probably a good thing now for UNLV. I mean, I think you're going to see their program because now that they're playing in the Death Star in Vegas, you know, back in the day when we had the Pony Express, they moved from uh, they moved from the Cotton Bowl, which was an antique at, at that point, to uh, the Texas Stadium because it's like, hey, if, if you come play here, you have a shot at the NFL and whatnot. That's just something I think they want to think about. You know, they're playing at Raymond James Stadium, which is a fairly, you know, not new, but one of the newer NFL fields. You know, it's, you know, it, it was Tom Brady's home the last few years and whatnot. They just need to keep stuff like that in mind. Yeah, I think they were just sort of concerned about how far it was from their stadium because I think that that is a big factor in it for them. I mean, because some of it's always been fascinating to see how that works when with stadium distances and things like that. I mean, the worst probably is still UCLA's arrangement with the Rose Bowl because it is about, oh, 20 miles. And it's with traffic, it's it's more than that to, to get to that stadium. You know, you, I'm glad you mentioned UNLV because I think, again, part of that's why they are now starting to get mentioned in some of the, the arguments of teams that could be potential targets for either the Big 12 or the Pac-12. I think the Big 12 is more interested in UNLV, but I'm not saying they're super interested. They still want the four corner schools, I think, more than anything. But they they have their own contingencies over at the Big 12, and now UNLV starts to get mentioned, and I'm, that stadium is a huge part of it. It's it's hard not to imagine that because Las Vegas is is clearly becoming – I mean, I, I have a, a very warm spot in my heart for Vegas. I started going there when I – I mean, I'm – 42, 43, no, 43. Uh, and um, I started going there when I was five. So uh, I, I've seen the city grow. Uh, I used to go about once a year. And to see them finally start to get pro teams when they got, obviously, the Golden Knights, when you know they got the Raiders. And now it looks like they're going to get the A's. So, Which, by the way, is a whole other story. Will that make another bowl game? I'm very curious about that because the, it looks like they, uh, last I read, and it's been a few days, and, and then, this kind of story, it moves fast. It looks like the agreement is they're going to buy the Trop on the Strip. The the Trop Hotel, the Tropicana, it's one of the older buildings, classic Vegas hotel. It's on the same corner as MGM Grand, uh, uh, Excalibur, New York, New York. So they're saying they're going to demolish that because it's a huge property. And they're going to work with the hotel owner. The hotel owner will then build a new hotel somewhere else on this large property. And then they're going to put the baseball stadium right there and i assume they're going to put a roof on it or something retractable because it is still vegas and it's a bajillion degrees but um man that suddenly becomes another venue so uh that would be real interesting there i'd be curious to see where that goes but but yeah but going back to to just unlv i think again this this rise of vegas is a sports entertainment destination and not just the the capital of entertainment is really benefiting them um, at least their viability and potentially being a target as, as again, the, uh, the potential uh, what, what's going to happen with the Big 12 and Pac-12 continue to develop. Anything that, uh, you know, anytime you see a pro team packing up and going, it usually involves, a brand, you know, the, the ease of getting a, a brand new, uh, brand new dig. That's why the Dodgers went to California. And it's kind of why I think the you know the the Rams have gone back and forth a little bit over the years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's interesting too. One of the things, by the way, this is kind of going to one of the larger questions or larger kind of issues going on in college football. This was, uh, I'm sure some of you may have seen this tweet or or not, but Stuart Mandel, um, who's obviously at the Athletic and he's been you know 
many other places before that. Um, you know, the question he was saying, the Power Five was an organic nickname that the media started using after the formation of the college football playoff because those five leagues got contract bulls and the other five had to share one. And his thought is the Power Five will probably go away on its own soon because it gives two points. There really isn't going to be much of a distinction in the expanded college football playoff because it, instead of being the, the locked in the top five, it's actually the six highest ranked champs, whatever conference they're in. Presumably, most of those are going to be in the P, what are the P5. We'll get the automatic berth. But then at the same time, as point two is, let's be real, it's the power two now financially with what's happened with the Big Ten and the SEC kind of rising above the rest into those 16-team mega conferences with TV uh, money to boot. So um, it's certainly going to be an interesting question. That's one of those thoughts that, that I'm going to be carrying as I kind of, as we head into the season, whether or not that's going to make a difference. I mean, because that's certainly what's causing the rumbles, that power two idea is what's causing the rumbles we talked about at the beginning of this show with what's going on in the ACC this week with Florida State and Clemson and a few other teams kind of being upset with the, the, the way the money distribution is looking and wanting to make it uneven um, to, to benefit those teams that were stronger. And that's certainly something that uh, the Big 12 is famously doing for Texas at one point. Um, but again, one of the things, by the way, I want to say about that ACC situation is I think they were very proud of the grant of rights deal and how locked it was going to keep the programs into that media deal. And so apparently the, the way the reporting was going about a handful of the teams, I believe six or seven teams were having all of their lawyers look into that grant of rights deal. And it turns out, yeah, they, they hired some good lawyers to write it. So uh, this today they're saying like, Oh no, we're, we're happy to be part of the ACC. So I think that's just a sign of, we haven't figured out how to crack that nut yet. Um, maybe they will. It, it, one school may have to challenge it, but you know, unless they've got a destination to land, it, it, it would be a pretty bold move to do. Um, let's see here. As we slowly wrap up, and, and we usually do these shows for about 30 minutes here in the offseason. Uh, oh, one other, one other deal I wanted to mention on a positive note in the state of Iowa, because again, we kind of mourn the, the closure and the final graduation at Iowa Wesleyan. Uh, birthplace of the air raid. Iowa itself has a really fun NIL one coming up. And the NIL collective, The Swarm, has announced a beer partnership where 20% of sales of one of their particular beers, I guess a swarm of gold nail, will go to the official NIL collective. So I, Iowans and beer, mm, man, that, I mean, Okay, maybe Wisconsin and beer might be even better, but I mean, you know that those are those are two those are two words made that that, that were made for each other. So I'm sure that's going to be a, a good one. And, and from what we're seeing from Iowa fans, even Iowa State fans, I should say, in that particular post, that is actually apparently quite a good beer. You know, another thing that came out earlier, far earlier this week, I mean, right after the last show, is Georgia and Florida, the world's largest outdoor cocktail party, um, looks like it might be played on campus in 2025 and 2026 because of uh, construction going on at Jacksonville on that NFL stadium. So that'll be an interesting one to see how that develops. Um, and then uh, one other story that kind of got us thinking, you know, Andy Staples wrote a really fun little piece in The Athletic because Notre Dame, they're, they're coming up with their uh, new apparel deal. 
And apparel deals seem to be losing a little bit of luster. Famously, uh, Under Armour is pulling out completely out of the entire area. I mean, it was, gosh, it was a little over 10 years ago when Russell Athletic did the same thing. Uh, so that's going to basically make it Adidas and Nike only because Reebok's got their whole NFL thing. They don't get involved in this stuff. So Andy Staples was like, you know, and maybe this is a little less a college football thing, more college basketball, but I love this idea. Why don't, with NIL deals now as available as they are, why doesn't the program just have a, a situation where, yeah, the apparel deal is for all uniforms, jerseys, warm-up clothing, you know, some shoes, but if a player can get an NIL deal on shoes, they should be able to get that too. To kind of make it a attention grabber, he said uh, Notre Dame should sign an apparel deal with Lululemon and let the athletes sign shoe deals for NIL opportunities. He was just using that as right a pure turn, example. Clyde. What? Lululemon? Come on, man. <laughs> hey, if they throw in leggings, that's going to be like one of the hottest uh, <laughs> deals for a lot of folks. But still, you know, it brings up the cl- the infamous you know and you sometimes see it thrown around we were one of the first um twitter accounts to throw this around like about oh almost 10 years ago but uh people don't some folks don't realize uconn for a hot minute wore aeropostal football jerseys and it's because of a really quirky i mean it, uh, again i've trained as a lawyer so to me i love this deal the way it turned out was for those who remember uh uconn historically obviously the basketball school and had d1 men's hockey They had a football program, but it was like a minor FCS program, not really paid attention to. They decided to move up to FBS, but there was kind of a time delay with their apparel deal. Nike had only made an arrangement to do UConn basketball and UConn hockey. Aeropostal had the agreement to all other sports. So you've got a there's a photo of, of Orlovsky, the, you know, the NFL quarterback, when they first went up into D1 and he's wearing a football jersey that has Aeropostal where it should be like a Nike swoosh or uh, an Adidas. And you know that they didn't make that jersey. They probably just private labeled it out to somebody and just said, just so our logo on it. But so sometimes you get those kind of quirky deals. But I got to say, though, for basketball, though, you could see shoe deals being a real hit. I mean, it was, what, not that long ago. I mean, what, five years ago when a bunch of people were, I think they went to jail over a whole scandal with Adidas um, and steering high school athletes to Adidas programs in college. So certainly in hoops, I could see that being an attractive deal. As pointed out, I mean, short of someone like Caleb Williams, uh, who's already won a Heisman, I'm not sure any football player would necessarily be an attractive uh, athlete for a, a shoe deal heading into in, in college. But it was a fun story. I thought it was kind of an interesting take, and it makes you think where some of the creativity could still be in the NIL area. So it has been about 30 minutes. We like to do these for about 30 and talk college football with you. I just wanted to thank you all for joining me and Coach Clark. So on behalf of myself, Bob Akairi, I just wanted to thank you for joining us. This is RCFB Talk 139. Now I'm going to hang up. And listen.